read that for us. We're going to go ahead and uh, pick up where we left off last week. Go ahead and read that for us. Okay, so the nature of this study is we're looking into uh, how we ought to conduct ourselves in the house of God, and we realize that uh, there's a a great deal of uh, dispute and uh, lots of different opinions about this, and so we want to uh, attempt to have a biblical definition of why we function the way we do in many issues pertaining to church life. We looked last week at the... Uh, nature of the church, it's three manifestations, uh, universal, local, and fellowship. And so uh, we dealt with the, the deferring natures here. We saw that we were born when we are born again, we're birthed into the church. And uh, that this is, uh, this is just like getting born into a family. It's not something that's debatable. You, when you're saved, you're a Christian, you become part of the body of Christ, the church. We saw that we are the oikos, the household and thus the family of God. This is true on a universal scale, but it's meaningless unless it finds expression in the local church or on a local scale, a local manifestation of the ecclesia, the assembly, the church, the called out ones. So many today feel that involvement in the local church is optional. They accept the definition of the universal church. They they accept the uh, theology that when you're saved, when you're born again, you're born into the church, you're born into the family of God, but they <clears throat> do not believe in the necessity of the commitment to a local church. Others join a local church but reject the notion of, uh, of any kind of uh, commitment or demands being placed on your life by the church, the church, uh, church, church membership is a perfunctory thing. The church is very secondary. Uh, it should never intrude on our personal lives, uh, our personal interests, our family time, our work schedules, our recreational activities, uh, the happy hour at the local bar. The church should not intrude on any of these things. That uh, uh, the church is very secondary, and we'll uh, we'll be uh, as involved as we choose to be. Others still feel that it's fine to uh, uh, be a church hopper and uh, uh, to go from one church to another. Others feel that getting your church from TV is fine. You just turn on TBN and you get all the church you need. I was talking with uh, somebody just the other day. I can't remember who, but they were telling me that their sister or one of their uh, one of their siblings. Uh, uh, gets tapes in from all of the ministries all over the world. And, and uh, between that and television, uh, uh, they're perfectly comfortable that this is adequate to, for the uh, upkeep of their souls. And so uh, these, these are some various thoughts as to commitment to the local church. What does it mean to be committed to a church? Uh, we're strong on commitment in this fellowship and in this church. And so the question is, are we justified in that? One of the accusations or the claims of the cult researchers that uh, wrote a little article about us, they, 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 they said, well, they're not a cult, but they're a dangerous group. <laughs> and so uh, one, of the, one of the main points that declared us a dangerous group was overcommitment, that we, we, our people are overcommitted. They, they go to too much church. 
you got to keep in mind that was written by uh, one of Walter Martin's gang. Walter Martin was an Episcopalian, and uh, the average Episcopalian goes to church Sunday morning. That's about it. And so, you know, when you're coming from that perspective, going to church twice on Sunday is a little radical. Then throwing in a Wednesday service and revivals is dangerous. It's fanaticism. It's uh, it's probably a, a, a cult technique of brainwashing. There's sleep deprivation involved. There's, uh, you know, there's uh, the constant uh, haranguing uh, until we all become zombies uh, and uh, become uh, uh, doorknobs or Potterhouseites or whatever we are. Amen. And so, uh, you know, the question really does uh, uh, bear consideration because even in this church we have varying levels of commitment. And uh, people perceive, uh, you know, this as very up for grabs. You just kind of do what you want to do about this, you know. If you want to be a one-banger, then one-banger's fine. If you want to have eight cylinders, that's fine. Twelve cylinders, you're really going, uh, you know. But it's all up to you. Commitment is a personal issue. And so we have to address the issue. We have to look at this scripturally and come to grips with why we as a fellowship uh, seems so unique in our challenge to commitment. Uh, it's very unusual. Many of you people have, uh, this is the only church you've ever experienced, but uh, I came up through the Assemblies of God. I experienced many, many other churches in my wilderness wandering period. And, uh, you know, a Wednesday night service that rivals a Sunday night service is unheard of. It just, it, it doesn't happen. If you get even a quarter of your congregation out on a Wednesday night in the average church, uh, that's, you're doing great, man. You're, you're rocking. And so uh, we have commitment levels, getting people involved in ministries, getting people involved in outreach. All of the various functions uh, that we have is very, very unusual in the church world. And so we have to ask ourselves, is, is this legitimate? Is this are we are we asking you too much? Because, as I said, even in this church, we hear this from time to time, especially from aging, grumpy saints who uh, you know who uh, are feeling the pressures of church and family and job. And uh, you know, I know it gets. Sometimes you're so tired you don't even want to think about going to church. And uh, you know, these the demands that come in on your life, and pretty soon you you can start getting an attitude. You know, you know, nobody else does this. I'd be fine just going to church Sunday morning and, uh, you know, I'd have the rest of the time to do what I want to do. And so so we have to we have to address the issue. We have to ask the question, biblically, what sort of commitment to the church should a Christian have? What sort of uh, involvement is legitimate? So the first thing we want to look at is, is a commitment to the local church even legitimate? Is that is that critical? Can I, as a Christian, do just fine uh, communing with God up on Mingus Mountain or out on the golf course or out fishing? Can I, you know, God is everywhere, isn't he? And so why, why do I have to go to church? Why is church such a big deal? And so the first thing we want to look at uh, is the necessary involvement in a local church. Uh, and there are several facts that argue for this. Uh, somebody get me Matthew 18, 15 to 17. Casey. Uh, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, Pete. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 17, Dave. 1 Corinthians 14, 29, Don. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, Mike Solano. And Psalms 133, Lucas. Okay, so 
Jesus only mentions the word church twice in the New Testament record. The first one we've already looked at in Matthew 16, 18, where he speaks to Peter and says, Upon this rock uh, I will build my church, uh, upon the rock of the confession of the sonship of Jesus Christ. Uh, And we didn't get bogged down in that whole doctrinal debate, but we saw in that scripture that the church is God's idea and it's God's building. It's He's the one that's building it. He says, I will build my house and the gates of hell, or I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is not a man-made organization. This is not a man-made institution. This is God's plan. This is part of His design. When He births a Christian into His kingdom, He He designed to birth us into the church and puts us where He wants us. We're going to look at that a little more in just a moment. But this is the first place that Jesus mentions the church by name. The second, and the only other mention of it, on the lips of Jesus is found in Matthew eighteen, fifteen to seventeen. So Jesus is previewing the nature of the church here. He's speaking before it even exists. And he's talking about what the church is about, or or at least giving us kind of a sneak preview of the church in action. And he's talking about relational conflict in the church, something we're going to look at later in this study. And uh, he's he's implying or presupposing that there's enough interaction between Christians to lead to this kind of disruption. He's, he's acknowledged, in other words, right off the bat, he's, he doesn't see Christians functioning as lone rangers. He sees them in a corporate context. He sees them in relationship to others. So much so that inevitably there's going to be conflict. He begins to tell us how we are to address the conflict. We go, we talk to them, we try to work it out one to one. Hearts of goodwill should be able to work things out. Sometimes the differences are so extreme that you have to bring someone else in to help mediate it. Sometimes parties involved are so obstinate that they won't hear from their brethren or anyone else, so it is brought to the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, and actually he's probably, most commentators feel he's referring to the leadership of the church. I'm not here to argue that point. What I simply want you to see is that Jesus sees a Christian in an environment where other people are relating to him, influencing him, and the thought of expulsion serves as a legitimate discipline. In other words, you will be removed from the church if you don't deal with these issues. So this is an actual threat, if you will, or a tool of discipline that Jesus foresees in the church, that this would, this would bring a heavy pressure on a believer's life, that if you don't take care of business, you will not be in the church. You are no longer part of that group of people. And so clearly in his mind, that's something that would, uh, you know, in, intimidate us into righteous behavior. He sees the church relationship as very critical and very central in the life of a believer. Okay? So that's what I want you to see in Matthew 18. 
The second argument for the supposition from Scripture that we are to be involved in a local church is that every epistle in the New Testament was either written to a local church or to the pastor of a local church. Every one of them. They weren't just writing general letters and dropping them from hot air balloons that all the Christians in the area read at their leisure. This was spoken to local churches. So the vast majority of the New Testament is written to a local church scenario. Third argument for the local church, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. gave all of these gifts, uh, leadership gifts, five leadership gifts, for the edifying, for the equipping of the saints. Go on. Till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but Okay, so he says, God gave gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, These gifts in and of themselves would be difficult to place or difficult to understand their function outside of a group context. Uh, Does this mean teachers just wander around knocking on doors asking, are you a Christian? I'd like to teach you something. Uh, I'm, I'm a pastor, which is literally a shepherd. I'm a shepherd, but I have no flock. Uh, there's, no, there's no sheep to attend to because there's no relationship here. There's no commitment. You're free to just wander. None of that, the gifting in and of itself becomes absurd outside of a local church context. In addition to that thought, we also see the picture of a body here And he makes a couple of very pertinent statements. The first thing he says is the only way that we have any hope of being perfected in our faith and maturing into likeness of Christ is in a body context. You will not mature, you will not grow, you will never become the perfect man without being connected to what all the joints supply. He says there is a, he says these giftings, these leadership positions are given to you to bring you somewhere and without their contribution in your life, you're not going to get there. These were given to edify, to build up and to bring you into maturity as a Christian. So without that, you're not going to get there. You cannot arrive at your final destiny as a Christian without the contribution not only of these leadership gifts, but also of what every joint supplies or what every member or what every part of the body supplies to you. So there is a a work of growth and a work of uh, discipleship and a work of maturing that can only come to the Christian in the context of other Christians making contributions into your life. 
Every joint is supplying something. Every person is making a contribution and bringing the whole body into maturity. Also note that tucked in the middle of this is a safeguard against false doctrine, that there is leadership, that there is contribution of other Christians so that you won't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. I have never met a Lone Ranger for Jesus that wasn't filled with false doctrine. I have never met a Lone Ranger for Jesus that wasn't on the borderline of being a complete nutcase. But invariably, they're filled with their own ideas, their own doctrines, because unless you've got other brothers that can look you in the eyeball and go, you're out of your mind, you're going to get tripped out. Unless you have pastors that are preaching truth at you and you're absorbing that, you're going to get tripped out. And so all of these different giftings to the church are for your maturing and for your safeguarding. But it's very clear that as Paul writes to the local church in Ephesus, he's making the point of the absolute need of one another, the essential involvement of the local church in the Christian's life. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 17 shores up this notion of mutual need. Okay, so here is Paul commenting on the various giftings of the church, and he likens them to different body parts. And so he says that in the final analysis of your life as a Christian, you can only benefit from the giftings of others in the church by relationship. He says you can't say, I don't need the eye. I don't need the nose. I don't need the ear. I don't need these things in my life. A lot of times we're tempted to do that. In fact, sometimes we go home from church after a dispute and we say, I don't need this. I don't need this. I've said that. I've said, I've said, I go get a job as a dog catcher. I don't need this. Every one of us has said that. I don't need this hassle. I don't need these people. But the Bible says you do. Because the Bible says that without it, you're as one who is handicapped or maimed or lacking Something that makes you a complete person. You're lacking an eye. You're lacking an ear. You are deficient in your ability to sense and to see. And so he's talking about the gifts. He's talking about the local body. And he's saying there's no way that you can dismiss your need of the local church and the contribution that those people make in your life. Furthermore, he's talking about the gifts And in 1 Corinthians 14, just a couple chapters later, he kind of pauses there, talks about the greatest gift is love. He kind of gets sidetracked. Then he comes back onto the gifts, and he says this in 1429, which is an interesting side thought. Let the prophets speak two or three, and let the others judge. And so he's talking in 1 Corinthians 14 about the, the exercise of various gifts in the assembly. And uh, he's, he's putting down a format for, their, for the operation of the gifts. And then he makes this statement. He says, when the gift is exercised, it falls to the rest of the congregation to judge the legitimacy of that gift. So without involvement and commitment to a local body, A, you have nowhere to 
exercise the gifts that God has given you in stewardship. That God has said, look, this is what I want you to do in the kingdom. Without a local body, you can't exercise that. You have no place of expression beyond that. You have no one to reference off of. So you may have, for example, the gift of the word of knowledge, but uh, who's to know? How, how do we know that? First of all, there's nobody to, nobody to exercise the gift with or for to benefit by your gift. Second of all, there's nobody to sit there and go, yeah, that was a legitimate word from God. So we run into this again and again. We run into people who are running around exercising their gifts. You know, you have prophets. I, I, was, I believe I was talking with Pastor Farrell about this where uh, he had a, a prophet come into his church and uh, he was preaching on giving. Well, this guy wasn't into giving. He was into taking. He was a welfare Christian. And so he listened to this sermon on, on giving and money and, uh, uh, and he gets done and he stands up and says, uh, uh, Thus saith the Lord, uh, your gifts are as dung to me. You know, because he didn't want to give anything. He wanted to take something. And so, you know, this guy had obviously developed a sense of the prophetic on his own. And had arrived at his revelation by much pizza and pepperoni. And absolutely no, uh, there was no measure of accountability in the exercise of his gifts. He just said what he said. Uh, and uh, that's just the way it works. Well, you run into that kind of stuff all the time. And you see uh, just insanity in the religious world because of the violation of this reality. There are, there are prophets walking around. When I was in El Paso, we had John the Baptist come to church. We had Moses come to church. We had lots of guys come to church. And they all were profoundly spiritual people. Uh, but they were complete nutcases because they were never in a place where someone could judge the legitimacy of the expression of their gift. Okay, he, uh, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, in my thinking, puts the whole issue of should I, is it necessary that I'm involved in a local church to rest? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. He says... Forsake not the assembly of the saints as is the manner of some. There are some people who do not value this. There are some people who say this isn't necessary. The apostle writes and says, don't be like them. Understand that you need to assemble with your brethren. There is a place for you in the church and you cannot ignore that responsibility. I have always felt that Psalms 133 is very significant in this argument. It's a, it's a little atomic bomb spiritually when you contemplate what he's really saying here. Let's have Psalm 133 in a loud voice. So he says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brethren and sisters dwell together or assemble together or gather together in unity. Then he uses the symbolism of the anointing on the high priest. He uses the symbolism of the refreshing of the dew of Hermon. So he's talking about the enormous benefits that come to us by assembling. But then he concludes the whole thing and he says, It is there that God commanded life forevermore. Where? In the assembly of the saints. 
It is there in the, in the uh, brethren dwelling together. It is in that location that the gospel goes forth, that the witness of God goes forth, uh, that the power of God is present to bring life into the lives, not only of us as believers, but to those who don't know Christ. And so that whole psalm is a powerful, powerful uh, foreshadowing of the uh, power of the church in the earth. So is there any questions about that? I don't want to beat this to death, but uh, any questions, uh, Bear? Yep. Very good. So Bear says, note in Hebrews that it says, even more so as you see the day approaching. Why so? Why so? Why would it be more important as you see the day approaching? As Jesus' return is becoming more and more imminent, why is your involvement in the local church all the more important? Carol. Well, it says that uh, the love of many shall wax cold because of iniquity shall abound. Okay. Very good. Contextually, he says, you gather yourselves together to provoke one another to good works. So that's going to keep your zeal up a little. You know, kind of kind of head you in from getting carnal. Very good. Dave? You know, lastly, there's going to be, uh, I think, rush of demonic activity. And if we are not meeting together, boy, it's going to be so easy. The Bible says that in the last days, it's going to be possible that even the elect are deceived. It talks about false prophets. It talks about a demonic influx of lying spirits. And so if you're out there on your own, without people to bounce your faith off of and check yourself and reference off of, you are fair game, man. You are lion lunch is what you are. And he's going to get you and he's going to devour you. Okay? Casey. So uh, first thing he mentioned was the other extreme of uh, really what he's referring to. Uh, one uh, manifestation of this is monasticism that became very, very popular back in the uh, Middle Ages and shortly thereafter. And so uh, that movement was probably generated by a real legitimate 
desire to separate themselves from the world and separate themselves to God, but it instantly decayed into very strange things. Also in the uh, 60s and 70s, coming out of the hippie movement was the whole concept of communal living. And uh, so we all lived together, and you can see how that in and of itself, if you just remember what we were like as hippies, the, that is fraught with peril. And so uh, that, that's an extreme. And so the, uh, you know anything in the Bible taken to extremes is... Uh, loses its uh, truth or validity. So that's the one thought. The other thought he had was uh, that every joint supplies, we provoke one another to good works. And so it's absolutely critical that you see not only are you depriving yourself of the benefit of the church, but you are depriving the church of the benefit of you. When you say, I'm not, I'm not committed. You're depriving the church and you're depriving God of a tool that he wants to use. You know, some, someone may have the gift of obnoxious. Just so the saints can get some polish and learn how to love obnoxious. I'm convinced of that. I've, through the years, I have watched. And in every church, there's someone with a gift of obnoxious. Every church. And I'm convinced God brings them in to take the burrs off of us and to teach us how to love people that aren't easy to love. Amen. Mike, we won't have any further comment on that issue. We don't want to know about your gifting. Mike. If you'll remember, I preached a sermon just before conference on the assembly. And that's what's involved in that dynamic, the, uh, the conclave. And so there's a dynamic that increases there. Uh, but just when he said being an usher, I just throw this out. You know, the, the, the value of each individual member in the body. Years and years ago, as a young pastor talking with other pastors, we began to see something. And that was how critical it was that an usher be a giver and a man of God in his own right. Here's a guy, he's just taken an offering, theoretically, helping people find seats, taking an offering, say, what's the big deal? But you put a dishonest man and the offerings go down. You put an ethical man and the offerings go up. You say, That's, it's, it's supernatural. How do these people, you know, they, they don't know anything about the guy. But it's, it's just astonishing sometimes to see the interaction of people in the church and the way their gifts make specific contributions. And if they weren't there, that contribution would be lost. So it's a very interesting thing to observe. Okay, uh, lots of thoughts and questions. I'm glad. It means you had your coffee before you came. But I want to try to get through uh, my primary thoughts here. So... Uh, the next issue that rises with the question, first we see, okay, so, all right, so uh, you got me. I, I need to be involved in a local church. That's clearly the scriptural pattern. That's clearly an obligation. So, but why do I have to go to just this church? Why can't I just jump around, you know? Why can't I go across town, see what's, see what's shaking over there, and go over to this church? Why, why, why can't I just sit home and, you know, get my doctrine from the TV, why can't I just send away for the table? Why do I need to be there? Why do I need to commit myself to a specific church? 
Uh, why can't I just move around? And, you know, everybody's got something to offer. And so, you know, actually I'll be smarter if I move around a lot. Right? That makes sense. So before killing this with scriptural death, let me point out that all churches are not created equal. Okay? And just because you hang a shingle out doesn't mean that God has anything to do with what you've just called the church. And so right off the bat, you can dismiss a great many churches that you wouldn't want to just hop into, lest you hop out loaded with a legion of demons. You can dismiss the Catholic Church immediately because of the horrific false doctrine that is clearly there that no one wants to touch because they're so big and so powerful and so historic that, you know, it astonishes me. Every cult book you ever get, nobody ever mentions the Catholic Church. It's the biggest cult in America. It's the biggest cult in the world. It's a massive cult filled with false doctrine. Not a week goes by. I am. I'm not. I am. He's up. He's down. He's up. He's down. It's on. Go away. <laughs> Thanks, Heath. Appreciate the effort. Okay, so, so just walking in. <laughs> Where would we be without Heath? This is a perfect example of every joint supplying. Scotty smoked the joints, and we got Heath. <laughs> Hallelujah. Every joint supplied. So, so I don't know. If I, I, you know, you go into some of these churches, going into the St. Peter's Basilica, it raises the hair on the back of your neck. Going into the Catholic Church in Mainz, the first time I stepped in there, I didn't want to go any further. It's like, it's spooky in there. And you start walking around, there's all these images of skeletons, you know, burying people alive. And stuff. It's just weird. It's just weird. St. Peter's Basilica, they got this, this preserved corpse of this pope. I mean, he's been there for a zillion years. It's funky, man. What do you want to even get close to this stuff for? And so, so you know, there's a church you can write off right off the top. Then you got... Your, your known cults, your Jehovah Witnesses, your Mormons, people that clearly fee, teach false doctrine, anti-biblical uh, positions. And so, you know, you can write those off. Then you can also write off a vast majority of uh, the old mainline denominations that perhaps started in genuine revival. But uh, I, would, I would recommend against hopping into any church that is ordaining or marrying queers. Probably a good idea that those churches have lost something somewhere along the line. And uh, you don't want to just hop in there, you know, and get very funky. So, so we can write those right off the top, but then that still leaves us a great many churches because this is a very churched nation. There's churches on every street corner, and, uh, and so there's still a fair number of places to bounce around. And so this brings us back to the question, why not? Why can't I? And what we start to get into here is the issue of the will of God. And how many of you know that the will of God is just a, a nuisance and it just cramps our flesh all the time? But it's what we as Christians live for. And so we start asking the question of the will of God. So I need some scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12, 8. 
Somebody get that for me. 1 Corinthians 12, 8. Uh, Jake, Daniel, get me 1 Peter 2, 5. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. Lucas, Pete, get me um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. Uh, Acts 20, 28. Uh, Mike, uh, Dave, get me Hebrews 13, 17. 2 Corinthians 10, 13. Dennis, 1 Corinthians 4, 2. Uh, Jeff, Mike, get me 1 Timothy 1.12, Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, uh, Randy, and Chad, get me uh, Matthew 25.21. Okay, 1 Corinthians God has set the members, everyone in the body, as it has pleased the members. He gave them exactly what they wanted. He put them in the church they wanted to. You know, I would rather go to a church where they told me I could drive a Mercedes-Benz, to be honest with you. In fact, I would rather go to a church where they would uh, buy me a Mercedes-Benz. I think that would be spiffy. But it ain't ever going to happen. Not here. And thank God for it, because if I had a Mercedes-Benz, I probably wouldn't be saved. It's not because of the Mercedes-Benz, but because of what it would do to my head. And so, so God has put every member as it has pleased Him, where He wants them. Isn't that amazing? It should astonish you that God is interested enough in your life to say, I want this one here. And I want him to do this. I want her to do this. This is astonishing. But this is the way God designs it, right down to the individual. First uh, Peter two five. You also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You are built into a house as lively stones. This is a very interesting picture. And he, he, uh, he exposes it in much greater detail in Ephesians 2, which we're going to look at in just a moment. But just think about this building because you can see in living color the nature of stones being built into a building. Okay? So that stone right there is not in the middle of some service going to go, you know what? I think I'll go over to Calvary Chapel. They need a good stone over there. Bye. Takes itself over there moves itself into the building. These stones are set in place and every one of them is needful. You start pulling stones out and pretty soon the whole thing is falling apart. Okay? So this comes home in much greater detail in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you are also being built together for the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Okay. Uh, let me read that out of the King James. It says, In whom all the building fitly framed together grows into the holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So now we're talking about custom fitting. The word fitly framed uh, is, uh, uh, is it's imagery of uh, custom joining of carpentry. There are some uh, buildings that are, are, are literally built without nails. They are, 
they are fitted in such a way, every piece is so finely tuned that there's no fasteners required. Each one fits in its, in its, uh, tenon and it's mortise, whatever it is, uh, it's, it's cut in such a way uh, that each one supports the other. Uh, and this is the picture that he's using. He's talking about uh, a finely tuned custom piece of carpentry. And he says, that's what God has done with you. You are honed to be a perfect joint in this building or a perfect uh, connection. In this building, the same word is used of the joints in the body later on in Ephesians. It's the exact same word. And so it's talking about uh, a, uh, uh, a very carefully crafted connection between the members in a church. Again, keep in mind, he's writing to the local church in Ephesus. He's explaining to them the nature of their relationship. He goes on, he says, build it together. In the Strong's, this is the word sunoika demeo. i got to work on my Greek. And so it literally means to construct or passively to compose in company with other Christians. And so he's, the whole picture, the language is very specific. He's saying that there are specific Christians that God has joined together. Specific Christians. Your, your connection is not with the next church down the street. Your connection is not with every other church in the world. Perhaps in a spiritual uh, level, in a universal church, there is a connection of some kind. But he's talking about a very specific building together of our lives uh, that we cannot afford to ignore. Okay, this doesn't suggest a freewheeling lifestyle where you're just free to pull out and, and run around and go wherever you want to go. This suggests lives that are woven together by the design of God. Okay, so that's the first concept that you want to embrace when you're thinking about commitment to the local church. In addition to this, there is the issue of accountability. There's the issue of specific accountability. What is pertinent is that God places specific people over specific flocks. The roaming Christian is never under anyone. There's no one that's giving account for his soul. There's no one that he is accountable to. There can be no direction. There can be no impartation. There can be no correction without headship. And it's very clear, as you look at the Scriptures, that God places pastors over us, hand-picked for His purposes. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 5.12 Know them, get acquainted with, get familiar with them that are over you, specifically you. There is someone that is over you in the Lord. Okay, So if that's every pastor in town, you're in trouble. But if God has put someone over you, which is what the language says, specifically there's someone that has been placed over you, then he says you, you need to build a relationship. Essentially, is what he's saying. You need to build a relationship with that pastor, with your overseer. This will do you well, as we will see in other scriptures. Acts twenty twenty eight. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has been clothed, 
Paul is saying to uh, pastors that are being put in place, uh, he says, you take heed to the flock that God Himself, the Spirit, has made you an overseer of. Okay? You take heed. God's put you over them. You are responsible for them. You are responsible for a given flock that God has placed you over. Hebrews 13, 17. For they watch out for your souls as those who would give an account. This forges an obvious link between a pastor and someone that's under them. I've got to give an account for you. I can't give an account for someone who is wandering all over the face of the earth. I can't give an account for someone who has not placed himself under my ministry and my oversight and my position as a shepherd. I can't do it. It's impossible. And so... Uh, he, he says that in the final analysis, if this isn't functioning in your life, that's not profitable for you. He says, having this in place is profitable for you. It'll, it'll build you up. It'll do something positive in your life. We're going to look more at that when we look at the whole question of pastoring the, in the church model. But uh, we see very clearly that there's a link that's forged, that there's someone that God has put over you. So we're, we're not just saying, you just, you just run around because if you do so, you have no one over you. Follow that? The, th- the thought's pretty obvious. It shouldn't, shouldn't be hard to grasp. 2 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul says we're not going to boast beyond measure. Or in other words, we're not going to claim an authority that is beyond what God has given us. But he says God has given us authority over a certain... Uh, quantity of Christians, and he says this authority reaches especially unto you. He's laying his hand on a group of Corinthians, and he's saying, my ministry is applies to you. You can't just ignore it. I have a place in your life. This was God's plan. This was God's purpose. You're connected with me, whether you like it or not, and I'm connected with you, whether I like it or not. This is the plan of God. Okay? Did I give 2 Timothy 2.2? I might have missed these two. I need uh, somebody to give me 2 Timothy 2.2. There's two very uh, interesting scriptures here. Uh, Pete, give me 2 Timothy 2.2, and Sam, give me 1 Timothy 5.22. There's an interesting thought in here that I want you to see. Because we're talking about a specific connection that God puts between uh, an individual Christian and the local church that he is committed to, that he has become a part of, or she has. 2 Timothy 2.2. The things that I've taught you, you commit to faithful men. We're talking about the ongoing communication of the gospel. We're talking about the ongoing work of discipleship here. And what he says is you're not going to just throw these truths and this instruction just out to anybody in particular. You have to, you have to give this and teach this to faithful men. Okay, so I don't know about you, but faithful men brings up immediate associations in my mind. There's no way in the world I can even determine whether you're a faithful individual without ongoing relationship. Without having time. You might come up and say, I'm a faithful Christian, but you know anybody can say that. I'm, I'm a man of God. 
So listen uh, to First uh, Timothy five twenty two and keep this whole thought in your mind. He's uh, instructing Timothy as a pastor, and he says, Do not lay hands on any man hastily or quickly. The laying on of hands that he's referring to, he mentions earlier how Timothy received the gifting of pastoral ministry through the laying on of hands. He's talking here about the recognition of ministry. And he's saying, Don't do that hastily. Don't just immediately say, Okay, this man's a prophet. This man's a, a man of God. He says this has to come over a period of time. Over a period of association, of relationship. We saw earlier how the church judged the word of the prophets. And so there, there has to be an ongoing relationship and the establishing of faithfulness for any of this to have any application at all. It doesn't make any sense without a relationship to a local church. And so he's talking about how this ministry flows and functions. He says ministry comes through faithfulness. So here we see in the church world, there was a, there was a fellow who left the church some time ago. Um, he left the church. He was smoking dope. He was drinking beer. And he wasn't in the church across town two weeks before he was a Bible study leader. Okay? He hadn't changed his behavior, but now he's got leadership ministry. That's insanity. Many, many churches, as soon as a visitor walks through the door, the first thing they ask is, what can you do? Oh, great, we've got a slot for you. Okay, when I first came to this church, you know, I'm, I'm a guitar player. I'm, I know my stuff. I can play in your music scene. Thanks, but no thanks. What do you mean? I've been, I've been out singing Christian tunes for years now. I've, I've used this as a tool of evangelism. I know what I'm doing. Why don't you just sit for a little while? Well, the first thing that does is it crushes ego, which is very good. The second thing it does is it gives time for the congregation to figure out whether I'm going to get up and sing about Jesus or sing about my sweetheart. And whether I have an evangelistic desire or whether I just want to be a rock and roll star. Because over a period of time, faithfulness begins to reveal the nature of a man or a woman. Without a commitment to the local body, without involvement in the local church, none of that has any means of actually taking place. You cannot determine whether someone is a faithful believer without an ongoing relationship in the local church. A couple other quick scriptures. 1 Corinthians 4.2 It's required of stewards that one be found faithful. 1 Timothy 1.12 Counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Ephesians 1 1. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful, the faithful in that church in Ephesus, okay? And uh, Matthew 25 21. Recurring theme in Proverbs is ministry is a stewardship that is given to faithful men. Okay, so this whole concept of faithfulness is woven in to the concept of Christianity and the church. Open it for quick questions, discussions here. We've, we've done pretty well. We've determined you've got to be involved in a local church. And 
you've got to be involved in one local church. That there's an issue of being committed to a local church. Questions there. Mike. family, they had relationship, and they were receiving this supply of what the joints give Absolutely. that you weren't. Yep. That's because we're a cult. Paul had apostolic ministry, which involved the oversight. He, he says specifically, not only do I share, carry all the burdens that I'm carrying, but I also have a care or a, an investment in the churches over which God has given me an oversight. So here he has, in apostolic ministry, a leadership um, demand on his life. That's his gifting. He has to go and put input into these other churches because they are under his care. Okay, uh, Greg. Very, very good. Paul spent 10 years in Antioch before he ever went traveling. Okay, Dennis. <laughs> very good. Okay, so the dynamics have changed a little. I don't know how we ever spread the gospel without airplanes, but... God managed somehow. Uh, one last thought, real quick, Gary. Well, besides that, Paul was a pioneer. He left church behind when he left. Yeah. Um, three pioneer in another city. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so we see this reproduced in our own fellowship. Men will raise up church, move on. And uh, so it's, it's legitimate, uh, but this isn't, doesn't just give you license to just go dancing all over the place. So very good. we got one final question we'll look at last week, or next week, last week. We'll look at, uh, you know, sometime in the near future.